we sing songs of sacrifice. But who save God can outdo Hannah? She humbly offered what was most precious, a son to serve her heavenly father. Then year by year, she clothed her gift with robes woven of love and devotion. It's as if Samuel were a gift given again and again and again. Are we like Samuel? We come before the Lord naked, fragile offerings given in response to God's forgiveness. Then we are called to clothe ourselves with layers of goodness, love, kindness, and compassion, gratitude, grace, and humility, patience, and the peace of God, holiness, the goal. But how can we possibly attain it? How can we begin to gather such threads to weave a robe of righteousness? For answers, we must follow the example set by the Lord when he was 12. We must carry our questions to the temple, sit before the rabbis, and lose ourselves in the teachings of God. Our readings start this morning with Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them together, all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Samuel 2, 18 through 20 and 26. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah, his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. Luke 2, 41 through 52. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. 
Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. The word of the Lord. We've arrived at another Christmas. We've opened our present. Craig, I loved your gnome. Uh, That was awesome. I can't think of a better present for a better guy. Uh, I'm sure glad I didn't get one this year. Uh, (laughs) We all opened new presents. We received new gifts. I I received a gift from my wife this year that didn't even exist 10 years ago. I, I now have a speaker in my house with an app. I can, I, can, I can hit this app and I can play pretty much any kind of music I want to play. And, and it sounds really good. It's not just, you know, like a tinny little transistor radio like I grew up with. It's, it's pretty cool. Thank you, dear. <laughs> the, the challenges of new gifts are the, is, however, that the old passes away. The Denver Broncos discovered that this season as Peyton Manning has uh, faded from the scene, except to become news about a steroid scandal now. And a guy named Brock Osmiller has become this really good quarterback, a new present, but... An old gift fades away. We we struggle at Christmas in our heart of hearts to welcome the new and to somehow yet celebrate that which has been with us. We call it a changing of the guard. I remember when, uh, you know, a transistor radio was the deal back in my day. And, you know, this poster's so old that nobody actually has iPods like that anymore. Everybody listens to music on their smartphones. But it was George Orwell who said, Each generation imagines itself to be more intelligent than the one that went before it and wiser than the one that comes after it. In our congregation this morning, there are representatives of the builder generation, the greatest generation, the generation that held our society together through depression and war and built prosperity. Their children, the boomers, who, who wanted to experience all of life, to suck the marrow out of it and to enjoy 
everything. And the Xers who got what was left. And the millennials who are rebuilding society and kind of looking at boomers saying, yeah, you guys screwed up really bad. <laughs> How do we hear the voice of generational change in our congregation, in our lives? How do we hear the, the call of that which is new in our midst? The Apostle Paul faced that in the church in Colossae. He wrestled with that congregation theologically, perhaps more than any other congregation he worked with. <clears throat> the book of Colossians is richly dense with language about who Jesus is because the church there struggled with understanding who this Jesus was. And when he gets to chapter 3 in the passage that was read for us, he lays out what scholars, big word alert, scholars call a hausentafel, house rules, uh, a set of guidelines for how to be Christian community in light of this Jesus who is so unique and so powerful and so much at the center of the universe. Here's how you live. Paul says that in verse 12, it's God's love that forms our character. It's not our character that, that somehow earns God's love. It's God's love that has chosen us, that forms us, that gives us identity. We don't earn the love of God. He, it's a gift. It's a free gift with no strings attached. If you were here Christmas Eve, you put that together. And Paul goes on to challenge the Colossians that at the essence of a loving community is the gift of forgiveness. That what makes Christian community unique is not that we have our theological P's and Q's in order. Not that we've dotted our I's and crossed our T's on the doctrinal statements. Not that we've got our orthodoxy right about your favorite doctrine. Not that we've got our politics in order. What Paul says is central to being Christian community is forgiveness. I don't know about you, but to me, when Paul says that, it implies, well, to not put too fine a point on it, it implies that we're going to screw up a lot. To say forgiveness is at the center of what it means to be Christian community implies that in Christian community, there are going to be a lot of mistakes made. There are going to be a lot of noses that get out of joint and panties that get in a twist. We're, we're going to get upset with each other. Gee, that never happens here, does it? Forgive me. Absolutely. <laughs> Better that than the table burn up while I'm preaching. <laughs> Forgiveness is at the essence of community, and that leads to our calling of peacemaking. If we can't forgive one another, how do we call ourselves a peace church? If we can't forgive one another, how do we call ourselves believers in the Prince of Peace? 
And so Paul says, in order to do this, in order to live this way, there are two things you need to do. In verse 16, he says, sing the message. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we, we sing our theology. That's why Gary's the worship pastor, the theologian in residence. I can talk until I'm blue in the face, but we remember what we sing. Only a few of you actually remember what I preach about, and then you come back three weeks later and ask me questions, and I don't even remember what I said. <laughs> but we remember what we sing. I've been listening to a podcast called uh, Hymnstry, like chemistry, hemistry. And it's these Texas emergent church 20-something guys. Now, normally, this kind of demographic would make me want to set my hair on fire. Uh, but but what, what is unique to every conversation in the nine episodes I've listened to so far is that they all say, I remember back when I was a kid in Sunday evening church service and my dad or my uncle or my cousin was the chorister who would get up there and, you know, do the four-four time thing. And I remember the songs we sang. I remember song 318. Can't remember what the title was, but I can sing it. And it's number 318 in our hymnal. Every community has a number 318 or a 606 or a whatever. We have the songs that we remember. And Paul says, sing those songs. Build a soundtrack of faithfulness. Press the Soros button of discipleship. Sing the message in order to then live the message. Those were Paul's rules for community. But in order to welcome community, we, had to, we have to begin to realize that community is made up of multiple generations. And 1 Samuel 2 begins to give us a hint of that in the Old Testament. The Samuel saga, 1 Samuel chapter 1 through the first verse of chapter 25, these are not warm and fuzzy middle-class white American families. Uh, there are no rosy, warm family stories in 1 Samuel, anywhere. Eli, there, there's no mom mentioned at all in Eli's saga. He's got two sons who are just, well, the, the biblical text calls them scoundrels. Now, you're the high priest of Israel, and, and the text says that your sons are scoundrels. That's how you're remembered. Samuel didn't raise kids all that well. David comes from a family with seven sons competing with each other for favor. Saul and Jonathan have a conflicted relationship because of David. Time and time again in 1 Samuel, there are these family systems that seem to be falling apart. And here's Samuel in the text read for us. Offered to priestly service in the tabernacle. And even in the midst of horrid corruption, learns how to follow Yahweh. 
Samuel's ministry is described in verse 18, and, and it's in contrast to Eli's sons, whose story is told in verses 12 and onward. And there is this annual event in Samuel's life which had to be, at best, bittersweet. His dad brings his mother, and his dad's married to two women. It's a polygamist. He brings the mother, Samuel's mother, with him to the tabernacle, and they reconsecrate him. Now, that we want to paint a happy face on that event, but think about that for a minute. Your only son is living in boarding school, and you get to see him once a year. That, I, it's hard for me to get my head around and say, oh yeah, this is really good. There's, there's so much more going on in this text than just happy, godly family. Now, it, it reinforces Samuel's priestly formation, that, that robe that Hannah knits every year lovingly and brings to his growing son. She's having to guess his measurements. Did he, did he grow a lot this year? Did he grow little? Is this going to be in style by the time I get it to him? And finally, she sees him for the first time in a year. And, and her heart melts in that moment. And Samuel's priestly formation is reinforced as he wears his linen ephod. He's not even a member of the tribe of Levi. He's not even officially a priest. He's, he's playing at being a priest. Eli can't trust his own son, so he's bringing this little guy along with him. And every year he gets a little bigger and gets a new robe. And Eli blesses his parents who left him in the tabernacle. And Samuel's priestly offering is rewarded. And we read at the end of this passage, again in contrast to Eli's sons, that Samuel's reputation is growing steadily. As people come to the tabernacle, as the tabernacle goes around to the communities of Israel, and little Samuel follows Eli and helps him, assists him. People begin to take note of this young man. A second story from our lectionary readings this morning from Luke 2, 41 to 52, gives us the one glimpse of Jesus as a child. And it's clearly a comparison and contrasting of the Samuel story. And it provides us some insight into the, into the formation of this young Jesus. We see the piety of Jesus' family, perhaps in contrast to the piety of Samuel's biological family. Jesus' family committed to, to loving Jesus in their home. But then Jesus makes this, this willful choice. Everybody's packing up to leave the festival. And Jesus stays. 
You know, it's a confusing caravan headed back north to Nazareth. And Jesus just hangs out in the temple. Just sort of, ah, show mom and dad. No, I'm going to stick around. And he has these the series of what the text calls amazing and astonishing conversations with the priests. He also has an anxiety-producing conversation with his parents when they finally realize he's not with the caravan headed north and they turn around and come back frantic trying to find their son. And Jesus gives this jarringly confusing response. Didn't you realize I should be about my father's business? And Joseph's going, what? We've got orders waiting for us back in Nazareth to carpenter shop, remember? That's the business. And Jesus is going, no, this is my business. Here, conversing with the priests and the scribes and the experts in Torah. And there is this new normal that in Jesus' family, Mary treasured. That's a really, it's a vanilla translation. Pondered, worried, considered are all options in the Greek. Mary didn't just have warm, fuzzy feelings about that strange weekend at the temple. She worried about it. What does this mean? And Jesus' reputation, like Samuel's, grows and grows. These texts conspire together to remind us of the need to make room for God's new people in our midst. The days are coming, and indeed may already be here, when the current generation of leaders will need to give way to new voices of women and men with prophetic call. The church in our society is changing. We live in the cusp of post-modernity and certainly at the cusp of post-Christendom. The Bible belt doesn't fit anymore. It doesn't fit anywhere in our society anymore. And that means the post-everything body of believers is going to look different and act different and be different than the baby boomer driven church that many of us are comfortable with. In short, the years to come for us as a congregation will be years fraught with mixed messages and mixed signals because we speak two different languages. We speak the language of Christendom and modernity and the language of post-Christendom and post-modernity. And we will find ourselves at times flying past each other, if we haven't already. And I think we have. I have. <laughs> and so the texts conspire together to call us to an unlikely generativity, to an unlikely life-giving approach. They call us, first of all, to the centrality of forgiveness. I don't want to be known at Madison Street as the biggest church in Riverside. I don't want to be known as the, the best 
worshiping church or the best preaching church or the best whatever. I want to be known as the church that forgives. The church that forgives over and over and over again. I want, I want forgiveness to be central to who we are. Now that, that means, number one, we're going to mess up a lot with each other. But it also means we're going to do the hard work to stay in relationship with each other. Because that's what forgiveness is all about. Forgiveness just isn't, oh, my bad, or oh, you're bad. It's about figuring out how to make things right with each other. And that is hard work. We'll need to realize, secondly, the reality of our brokenness. The post-Christendom church, the church that, that we are becoming is going to be increasingly imperfect. We, I think, like to think about our history as a congregation as one of really striving to get it right. And, and that was good and, and powerful and holy. But we are now in an era where we are going to get it wrong a lot. And we need to recognize the reality of brokenness. The reality of brokenness in our personal lives. The reality of brokenness in one another. The reality of brokenness in our congregation. The reality of brokenness in our community. The reality of brokenness in our denomination. Brokenness is going to be everywhere. Because the church is changing. And thirdly, we're going to need the necessity of precociousness. We're going to need snarkiness in our congregation. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a fair amount of that spiritual gift going around, I know. We're, we're going to need a fair amount of people willing to speak their minds. And yes, we have a fair amount of that going around too. But, but that's what I love about this church, is that we are increasingly precocious May our tribe increase. May our precociousness continue. Because that's, that's the Samuel and Jesus stories in our readings today. Samuel, this precocious little non-Levite, gets his little robe every year and follows Eli around doing temple stuff, doing tabernacle stuff, taking care of the religious life of a nation as a little kid. And Jesus sits with his, not his parents, but his peers in the Torah, the scribes and Levites and priests of his day, and asks them amazing and astonishing and disconcerting questions. Now, in order to become that kind of unlikely, life-giving church, we are going to need to follow an unlikely pathway. We are going to need a spirituality that's formed out of a mission, out of a sense of doing our father's business. Whether our father is corrupt Eli, the old systems that don't quite work, or our father is the father in heaven, we are going to need to be about the business. We'll need to find grace in pain. Because grace doesn't come in a post-Christendom, post-modern church. 
from our happy feelings. Grace is not a happy meal. Grace is a dish of pain that God transforms in our lives. And we will have to be a community committed to to engagement in conversation, to talking to each other a lot. So this morning, some questions. And I've structured these questions differently than I have at other times because I picked a date in the calendar. I picked 1976. Hey, it was the bicentennial. And I made it an arbitrary date. There are those of us who were born before 1976. Show of hands. Thank you, thank you. And those born after 1976. Show of hands. Yeah, that's about half and half almost. For those of us born before 1976, how are you preparing to leave a legacy? How are you a blessing? How are you offering your life to the next generation? Who are you pouring your story into? And how are you demonstrating a rule of life that offers forgiveness and grace and meaning? For those among us born after 1976, from where are you taking your cues? Whose blessing do you want? What stories are important for you to learn? And how are you crafting a rule of life that's based in forgiveness and grace and meaning? I don't have answers for any of those questions for you this morning. And if I did, you wouldn't like them. Because they're your questions. They're our questions. They're questions we have to wrestle with individually and together as a congregation over the next years. One more thing. What is said of leaders may also be said of churches. Outstanding leaders, it's said, outstanding churches, pass the torch with fire blazing. Mediocre leaders and mediocre churches pass a dimly lit torch. Poor leaders, poor churches drop the torch, making it difficult, if not impossible, to pick it up again. Those of you who are part of this congregation from the beginning, I've heard your cry over the last 10 years. You you want this congregation to be a legacy, to be a place where faith continues, where, where the gospel continues to burn brightly. That happens as we begin to make room for new ways, new approaches, different questions, precociousness, snark, forgiveness, and do it again. And for those of you who have entered into this congregation more recently and are younger, we need your snark. And we need your forgiveness. And we need you to walk with us. To be the church that is becoming 
It's part of a post-Christendom world. We've got to throw all the rules about how to be polite with each other out and start being forgiving with each other and start being broken in front of each other and start being precocious with each other because it is in those moments that we will experience the grace that God has to offer and we will grow in stature with God and with our community. Thanks be to God for his word.